Wednesday night, we're gonna uh, cover Mark chapter seven, Lord willing, so that's the plan at least. Um, so we're gonna just let, pick up where we left off. If you're just joining us, we're uh, a church that goes right through the Bible, chapter by chapter, book by book, um, and we don't skip a verse. Um, and we happen to have ended on Wednesday night in chapter six, so now we pick it up in Mark chapter seven. Um, did any of you go through a season of your life uh, rebellious? Rebellion years. How many of you guys had a rebellious years section in your life? Okay, yeah, me too. Uh, fourth grade. <laughs> now you guys laugh. Um, I was a drug dealer and I was in a gang in fourth grade. That's actually true, what I just said, sort of. I, I should say, um, I sold these needles that I stole from my dad's drawer at his house. They were ar architect drafting needles and I sold them to my buddies for a dollar a piece. Uh, and I told them if they poked themselves with it, they'd get a sort of a hit off of that. Um, and I sold those for a buck. So I was, I was a drug dealer. And I also joined a gang they called the Murder Gang at our uh, Rouge Elementary School. Uh, and we thought, why did we call it Murder Gang? Because it was the meanest, horrible word we could think of. Uh, and we, we, so I did that. Mr. Beach, which was my fourth grade teacher at Rouge Elementary School, he showed up on my front doorstep two times that year to uh, have to have a personal conversation with my parents about my behavior. So fourth grade was my rebellious years. Now, shocking though, um, there was one time that I got really in trouble for something I didn't do. Um, it was, I was, uh, you know, after recess, I was running into the boys' bathroom before I was supposed to back, go back to class and I wanted to go wash my hands. I think we were, you know, playing uh, football or something out there at the recess and I was dirty. So I went into the bathroom and when I went into the bathroom, um, there were sixth graders in there. Uh, that was back in elementary schools at sixth grade down through first grade, if you remember the good old days. Well, um, the sixth graders boys were in the boys' bathroom tearing it apart. They were at the paper towel suspenser, you know, 30 feet just going out. And they were throwing spit wads out of toilet paper and turning over the trash cans. And I was a fourth grader, just stood there in awe, thinking, wow, look at these kids doing this stuff. Um, and they all ran out laughing, ah, and then stuff. And so anyway, I washed my hands and then I went to the towel dispenser, went shink, shink, shink. And then suddenly I felt this big, strong hand on my shoulder. And it was none other than Mr. Swift. He was the principal of Rouge Elementary School. And he assumed, because I was there going shink, 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 that I was the one who did all the damage to the whole bathroom. And he turned me around, and back then you could do stuff like this. He took his finger and poked me in the chest and said, Mr. Metter, march down to my office right now. You know, I was getting hit by Mr. Swift's finger. And, and, uh, and so I marched down, you know, da, 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 you know, to the principal's office. <clears throat> and there I sat, uh, he sat me down and said, now you wait here. And he left, and I remember sitting in the office. And it's funny, I, my parents actually laughed because I do have a really good memory of, uh, like I remember everything from three years old to 12 years old. There's other gaps after 12 years old, but I, I have a steel trap memory of everything when I was a little kid. I don't know why. I think I had a wonderful childhood mostly, that's why. But, but um, I remember distinctly what I was thinking when he walked out. And I remember thinking this, uh, this was my uh, logic. I, I was thinking, I didn't do anything. Um, and then I remember, now whether this was the Lord talking to a nine-year-old Brett or just me being logical, I can't really say, but I remember thinking I didn't do anything, but whatever I get, I probably deserve. I remember thinking whatever I get from Mr. Swift, now you have to understand, some of you are like, whatever, but in those days, principals gave you spankings. 
uh, at Rouge Elementary School, it was all about how many swats were you gonna get from Mr. Swift? The Swift swats is what we called them. And he had a board and like he would give you spankings, like, and you have to bend over, grab your ankles, whack, whack, whack. Five swats, three swats, what was it gonna be? And I remember wondering about that. Um, but I remember just thinking, you know what? Uh, for what I'm about to receive, may I be truly thankful. Like I was truly like, I, I was totally at peace knowing it. Now, one reason I was at peace is because I knew Mr. Swift's swats weren't as bad as my dad's swats. So I'm like, whatever, big deal. Uh, Mr. Swift and his little softy swats uh, compared to my dad. I was like, uh. now, um, now all that to say, where did I get that mentality? Um, was it from the Lord? I don't know, but I do know this. My parents at a very young age taught me, Brett, you're a sinner. And no matter how good you think you are, you're not good. You're actually a sinner, a wretched, miserable sinner. And, and the, the wages of sin is death and hell. Like I learned that from a very early age. Um, you say, that's a horrible message to give to children. Um, no, it's actually hugely important. You see, one of the biggest problems with the world today is people think they're basically good. You were told by your elementary school teachers, you're a winner, people love you get a blue ribbon, here's the trophy for participation and, and it's all, you're a good person and people like you. No, the Bible teaches exactly the opposite. We're all wretched, miserable sinners. No one's righteous, not even one. No one really even seeks after God. Nobody ever does anything. Like the Bible is really clear about our wretched, miserable, sinful condition. Paul the apostle, who was a Pharisee of Pharisees um, uh, before he was a believer in Christ, he thought he was really good. Uh, he was better than everybody else. That's what they called Paul, the Pharisee of Pharisees. Then he accepts Christ and, he, and then he preaches as a as young minister, he preaches, we're all sinners. He taught that. But then in the middle age of his life, he, he wrote and he said, I, Paul the apostle, I'm a sinner. But the last, one of the last epistles he wrote um, with an old man shaky hand was to young Timothy. He wrote this, I, Paul the apostle, am the chiefest of sinners. Was Paul getting worse and worse as he got older? No, he became more and more aware even after he was saved and forgiven for all his sins. He said, oh, wretched man that I am. I do the things I don't wanna do and I don't do the things I do wanna do. And, and he said, oh, there's, I found that within me there lies no good thing. That's what Paul said. And he was right. So I was raised as a little kid to realize, man, I'm just a sinner who deserves more than I probably am getting as far as punishment or whatever. And I found that that has served me well and it serves people well if you kind of have that mentality. Brett, if you think you're a horrible sinner, then why do you smile? You should be depressed and sad. No, it, here's why I'm happy. Because that's what the whole Bible's about. While we were yet sinners, God demonstrated his love, sending his only begotten son to die on the cross for my sins in my place so that I could be saved by his grace. I didn't deserve it, I didn't earn it, but, but the Lord loves humanity so much that he sent his son to die and I have salvation through Jesus Christ, so I'm really happy. But you know what, there's another byproduct of you and I understanding how wretched and horrible we really are, and that is when you realize what a weirdo you are, then you're, you can be a little softer on everybody else. When you realize everyone is wretched, miserable sinners, it, it definitely lowers our expectations. Have you noticed the world's getting meaner and meaner and people are chiding against one another more than ever? People are so easily offended and upset and yelling and screaming on the news. Celebrities are upset. Musicians are upset. People are angry and, and, and we have such high expectations. When somebody lets us down, we're all surprised. Oh, so-and-so did such and such. Oh, what happened? 
They're all miserable, wretched sinners. Nobody should be shocked. And one of the things the Bible actually teaches is that if you think you're really good, you're actually not. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 says, wherefore let him that thinketh he stand, take heed lest he fall. You see, when you realize you have the capability of falling and failing, and that could happen at any second, then you're gonna be a little softer on the person who's failed and fallen in their life as well. And that's why the Bible does this sort of compare and contrast against others and yourself. Like for example, we're commanded by uh, you know, the scriptures in Ephesians 4, 32, be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. You see, when you realize you've been forgiven much, then that doesn't leave any room for you to be stingy with forgiveness. When you realize you should be gracious because God has been gracious to you. Jesus dealt with our sins on the cross. And when you realize your own faults, you don't go looking for faults in others. Are you a fault finder? Are you a sin sniffer? Are you an iniquity inquisitor? Some of you are professionals. There are people that are, I I don't know why, but there are some people that are particularly fault finding sin sniffers and they go around looking at other people's faults. Usually that's because they don't know their own faults. They're actually just kind of ignorant of their own failings or they push it down and want to have a, at least a, a presentation of having it together so that they feel like they have the right and they can almost convince themselves, I'm better than you, so I'm gonna be a fault finder and I'm gonna be a sin sniffer. There were people during the time of Jesus that were fault finders, they were professionals. They were looking for faults in others and enforcing righteousness upon others. They are none other than the famous Pharisees of the Bible. Where do the Pharisees come from? Are they a biblical sect that the Bible says, thou shalt make Pharisees? Well, actually no, Pharisees aren't mentioned in the Hebrew Bible at all in the Old Testament. They weren't ordained by God. During the intertestamental period, that is from the end of the Old Testament period, between there and when Christ comes on the scene, it was during that time period the sect of the Pharisees came into power. Um, now, who were the Pharisees? What happened was, is the Jewish people, um, they had the Old Testament law, the, 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 the Torah, the, they had the, the laws of Moses. Remember when I put up on my screen the 613 laws of, of the Jews, I put that up there? Well, that's what God gave the Jewish people. No one ever was saved by keeping the law. The Bible says we are no longer under that law. We're, we're saved by grace, but by not keeping the law, you gotta read Galatians and passages like that. But the Jews at that time were trying to keep the law of God, the law of Moses. The problem came when the Jews were trying to interpret the laws. For example, let's go really basic. The law of Moses, remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Thou shalt do no work on the Sabbath day. Um, so that was the law, that's what God said. But the Jews were like, well, what constitutes work? Uh, gardening in my backyard, is that work? Um, or going to work, uh, you know, uh, if I'm trying to gain a little extra money, is that, what's breaking the Sabbath? So, so they started interpreting those laws. And uh, through oral tradition, they started saying, well, if you walk more than 3,000 cubits on the Sabbath day, you're traveling too far, that's work. So you can't walk anywhere more distant from your house than 3,000 cubits, which is about 2,000 feet uh, in our length. But that was the law. And so they started saying that. Does the Bible say thou shalt not walk 
you know, 2,000 cubits from your house? No, it just says, don't do work on the Sabbath, remember to keep it holy. But that's what they started saying. Well, okay, it's the, the, the 2,000 cubits. Um, and then they started clarifying, well, how much weight can you lift on the Sabbath? Uh, you know, and they, they came up with the idea and they landed on, if you're lifting anything more than a dried fig, <laughs> then you are doing work on the Sabbath, so you can't do that. Um, that's, that was their laws. And these were passed down by oral tradition through the centuries, no, nothing heavier than a dry fig. What if I'm carrying my false teeth in my mouth? It's not part of my body, but they weigh more than a dry fig. Take your false teeth out, gum your food all day on the Sabbath. Like that was the laws. They, they literally started saying no false teeth. And it got weirder and weirder. By the way, when you make laws heavier and deeper, what do, you, what do a lot of people try to do? You try to find the loopholes in the law, right? Like, what can we do technically keeping the law, but technically not, you know, like, like that's, that's human nature. So like, for example, on the traveling on the Sabbath day, not more than 2000 cubits, you know what they did? It, it actually evolved through, if you study this, it's kind of fascinating. The first thing they did, they started building tents, 1,999 cubits from their house. They'd build a tent, put up their North Face tent, uh, excuse me, their uh, REI tent. <laughs> Little joke there, if you know what I'm talking about. Um, they put their little tent there, and by putting a tent, 1,999 cubits away from their house, that's technically still their house. It's just an extremity of their house there. And so that, that they can travel there, and they have an additional 2,000 cubits they could go. So get another tent. Uh, and, and, then, and then they just kept putting tents everywhere, but that got a little too tense, so. <laughs> sorry, it's the fourth service. I get a little weird sometimes. Um, so they started putting all these tents up, but that was pretty tedious. So what they started doing is saying, let's, listen, let's take a rope, I'll tie a rope from my doorknob of my front house door to the doorknob of the next door neighbor and suddenly we're one, we're the same house. And if the neighbor ties a rope from their house to the next house, then those three houses are part one. And so they started tying ropes from house to house and they'd make a huge circle and suddenly the whole village became travelable because you're technically at home because the ropes are touching your house. You, you, you probably don't believe me, do you? I'm telling you, did you know they still do this today? It's only even weirder. The, the modern uh, Jewish name for this is Eruv, E-R-U-V. Um, and it's a real thing to this day. Every major city in America has an Eruv line that goes around the city defining an area where Jews can travel on the Sabbath day and not technically go more than the 2,000 cubits or whatever. You don't believe me? Look up portlanderuv.com, it's real. In fact, I took a screenshot of their map in case you're a Jew, making sure not to break the Sabbath day laws of the Jewish uh, elders' traditions. There's a fishing line that goes around Portland in this part of the neighborhood and you can, you can walk anywhere within that region and still be good on the Sabbath day if you're a practicing Jew. Uh, this is a map from eruv.com, uh, Portland. New York City, man, you can go all over Manhattan and, and all over you know, Queens, all over, you can go all over the place if you're a Jew uh, in New York because the roof line uh, goes all around the city. And so it's just goofy traditions uh, that have kept going and going and it just got weirder and weirder. So they talked about laws of clarification, laws of precaution, uh, you know, uh, by the way, like uh, for example, cooking, <laughs> this is a funny one. Uh, did you know that if you're cooking, that's work? So you're really not supposed to be cooking. Some of the ladies are like, what if we're wanting to do some pickling, like, you know, pickled radishes 
uh, or whatever. Uh, you can't do that on the Sabbath, that's work. Um, but if you wanna, this is, this is written in, in, you gotta understand this is the laws. If you wanna eat a radish, you can, and, but can you season it? Is that cooking? Yes, you can season it, but you can't pickle it. Now, if you're dipping your radish in salt, which sounds so delicious, <clears throat> Um, if you're dipping your radish in salt, you can't hold it in for very long because if you hold it in the salt too long, that could be constituted as pickling. So you only can hold it in the salt for a certain amount of seconds. Um, and uh, then you're not pickling and you're good to go. You're not gonna break the law. Do you see how weird it gets? One uh, guy was at Hebrew University. Uh, it was actually a, a Wilbur, Dr. Wilbur Smith, a pastor from a generation ago. He was in Hebrew University and he asked for a picture to be signed by one of the Hebrew professors. But the professor said, I can't sign the name, it's the Sabbath day. Because they can't sign, say, write two words consecutively, that might constitute doing work. And so you can't sign your name. Meanwhile, the guy was climbing up and down the ladder, pulling books from his shelf and, and uh, getting, breaking into sweat as he was talking to the pastor. Like, it's just stupid rules of man. Um, and so the Pharisees, where do they come in? Well, oral tradition, these clarifications on the law passed down orally, they would eventually write it down. It, the way it started was traditions of the elders. The scribes started writing down those traditions. The Pharisees enacted the traditions and even enforced the traditions. And then the Talmud and the Mishnah, about 200 AD, were the books compiled where the rules of traditional precautions were given. And it became formalized. So in the time of Jesus, there was no Talmud or Mishnah yet, but the oral traditions were passed down as laws and they were as important as the laws of Moses. They were held right up there with the laws of Moses. The reason I go into all this stuff, well, the Pharisees, they were sin sniffers, fault finders when it came to those exact laws, rules, regulations. And now their target is Jesus because he's breaking the traditions of the elders and they're gonna try to take him down. Um, so that's where we pick it up here in Mark chapter seven. Let's take a look. Mark chapter seven, verse one. It says, then came together under him the Pharisees and certain of the scribes, uh, which came from Jerusalem. And when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is to say with unwashed hands, they found fault. Now, there's a couple things already. One is, notice these are the big guns. These are the Pharisees from Jerusalem. Word got out that there's some dude up in Galilee who calls himself a rabbi, itinerant rabbi, and he's claiming to be the Messiah. And so the Pharisees here, all the way from Jerusalem, so they send the big guns, the Pharisees from Jerusalem, and now they show up and they see the disciples of Jesus. And it says, some of them didn't wash their hands before they ate. Um, notice it doesn't say all of them. Did Jesus wash his hands? It seems that he, they only accused some of your disciples. If I were to guess, it was Peter. Didn't, didn't wash his hands, but I, I couldn't make that case solely. But just a few, it says some of your disciples uh, eating bread with, with defiled, unwashed hands. Now, um, the thing is, you might be saying, okay, Pastor Brett, um, what's the big deal here? Well, it's not just that they were washing their hands like your mom made you do before dinner. It's ceremonial cleansing. It was a very rigid, distinct uh, pr process. You had to have one and a half eggs. You had to hold this hand out like this. And with your right hand, take uh, one and a half eggshell and pour it on this hand, rub the top, turn your hand over, one and a half eggshell, rub this hand, then turn this one over. And you know, it's like uh, playing patty cake with your uh, washing of hands with your little half eggshell cups. And you had to do it just like that, not for every meal, 
for every course of every meal. That was the ceremonial cleansing process. So Peter and James and John, those guys, fishermen, they're not sitting there doing their little washing of their hands. And these Pharisees, what? Now, 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 before we go on on this, this is their big, it says here that they found fault. That's how that verse two ends. They saw the disciples hadn't washed their hands ceremonially and they found fault. Fault finders, sin sniffers. Now, can I just, I wanna show you how ridiculous this is. What's Jesus been up to the last 10 minutes? Well, we left off on Wednesday night in chapter six, right there in verse 56. Let's review, what was Jesus doing? In verse 56, look at that of chapter six. Whithersoever Jesus entered into villages or cities or the country, they laid the sick in the streets and besought him that they might touch, if it were, but the border of his garment. And as many as touched him were made whole, healed. That's crazy. Like they, they go, Jesus is coming. So they line up on the sides of the streets like a parade, all the sick, lame, crippled people. And Jesus is just walking by. And as people just touch him, healed, 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 healed. Healed, 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 healed. Like, this is a big deal. Jesus is healing everybody that just touches him. Would you guys agree that that's kind of a big deal? And then the Pharisees come and say, you're not washing your hands for your meal. Do you see how stupid that is? It's just ridiculous. Jesus is healing all these people who are dying and they're all like, yeah, wash your now, 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 that's the legalistic sin sniffer fault finder. I've noticed that about, people that are sin sniffers and fault finders, they don't acknowledge the good things that are crazily happening all around them. They're just really good at pointing out the fault, the sin, the sniffing, it's gross. Now this isn't sin, I'll show you why. It's, it kind of clarifies verse three, for the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they wash their hands oft, eat not, holding the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the market, except they wash, they eat not, and as many other things there be, which they have received to hold as the washing of the cups, the pots, the brazen vessels, and of tables. Um, they had all kinds of religious rituals. It wasn't just the eggshells and the cleansing. It was pots and pans and the cleansing of hands. It was crazy, crazy level traditions of the elders. And Jesus wasn't doing all that stuff with his disciples. So verse five, then the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashen hands? And Jesus, he answered and said unto them, well hath I, now pause for a second before we read this. Um, I have to say this because there's this whole mantra out there that we need to be, the church needs to be like Jesus and only say nice things to people. Only be positive and nice like Jesus. That tells me people have been reading Jesus. Jesus was quite brutal in many places. Read Matthew chapter 23, brutal. One of the most brutal chapters in the Bible is Jesus. Um, and this is another case where, um, the reason I say that is because I believe in this you know, gay pride month where everybody's celebrating you know, the, all the uh, goofy acronyms and stuff, LGBTQ. I'm not even gonna play that game anymore. That's ridiculous, the whole acronym thing. Uh, who can keep up with it? Uh, even the gay people don't know how to say LGBT. Just tr watch Trudeau try to say LGBTQIA plus two, you know, A. Um, but anyway, um, it's ridiculous. And some of you are like, Brad, I can't believe you're saying that. Listen, the church has made a mistake for the last couple decades. And that is, 
we say, we're just gonna be loving, but we're not gonna tell people the truth. We're gonna be loving, but we're not gonna tell people the truth. But the thing that the church has missed here is that the truth is loving. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, but Jesus is also the embodiment of love. The love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13, you know, all the things that love is, love is patient, love is kind, doesn't seek its own, does not, does not vaunt, vaunt itself. Like there's all these things about love. In verse six of 1 Corinthians 13, it says, and love rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. So when people try to cram down your throat and say, you gotta say the right pronouns. And Christian, we don't wanna be, we wanna be nice and accepting and loving and tolerant. And we've done that at the expense of truth. And sadly, uh, you know, June has become Gay Pride Month where they really wanna cram it down your throat and you have to kind of stand and salute. And if you don't, you're a horrible, bigoted, fill in the blank. There's all kinds of names. I'm just saying, church, it's time to be lights in this dark world. Jesus, if, you, if you're saying, well, I just wanna be like Jesus, then listen to what Jesus says here because it's a, it's a similar thing. Um, Jesus answered verse six and said unto them, well hath Isaiah the prophet prophesied to you, of uh, you hypocrites. What does he call them? You're just a bunch of hypocrites. As it is written, this people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. I think there's a lot of people that claim to be Christians, but they embrace their sin rampantly, pridefully. And they, they, their, their mouth says one thing, but their heart is actually far from the Lord. Similar thing as the Pharisees, believe it or not. How be it, verse seven, in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines and the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men as the washing of pots and cups and many other such things like you do. And he said unto them, full well, you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your own tradition. For Moses said, honor thy father and mother, and whosoever curseth father or mother, let him die the death. Um, by the way, that's the law, Exodus chapter 20. But you say, verse 11, if a man shall say to his father or mother, it is Corban, it is Corban, that is to say a gift, by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, he shall be free. And you suffer him no more to do aught for his father or his mother, making the word of God of none effect through your tradition, which you have delivered, and many such things like you do. In other words, Jesus gives them an example of their wacko tradition using the word Corbin. I'll explain that in a second. But, um, but he says, you do your tradition, but you nullify the word of God by doing your stupid tradition. You make the word of God to no effect. Um, see, this is where this idea um, of tradition and these fault-finding Pharisees, we gotta do a little closer look. Let's, if, you're, if you're considering this with me, let's first think about the fault-finding Pharisee. Uh, the fault-finding Pharisee, uh, you know, um, they came a long way just to find fault. Um, one of the things that we need to be careful of is by far the Bible teaches us to be kind more than just being fault finders. There is a place, you know, Matthew 7, judge not lest you be judged. But it also says that we're to know them by their fruits. So there is a certain judging that does take place. Um, but these guys have taken judgmentalism to the next level. What does the Bible say? Philippians 1.10, it says, approve the things that are excellent. Uh, instead of looking for fault, try to find some ex excellent things. And you know, Romans chapter 14, verse 19, let us follow after the things which make for peace 
and the things which may edify one another. The word edify means to build up, to strengthen. We need to build each other up and encourage one another. Um, and, um, and, 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 and there is an interesting notion in the Bible that um, I think a lot of people misunderstand and we need some clarity. And it has to do with this. Um, and this is a rhetorical question. You don't have to answer this out loud. But is it okay to cover sin? Think about that for a second. Is it okay to cover sin? Well, let me put it this way. Uh, um, I believe it's okay to cover sin and it's, it's actually biblical. It's not okay to cover up sin. What's the difference between covering up sin and covering sin? Um, it's, it's actually pretty simple. If you're a sinner and you're trying to cover up your sin so that nobody finds out, um, well, you're really guilty. And the Bible says, be sure of this, your sin will find you out. That's a promise of God's word. And, and um, as it turns out, the Holy Spirit uh, will even uh, uh, you know, correct you. And, and there's all kinds of things about that. Covering up sin is not a good plan. David tried to cover up his sin with Bathsheba and he thought he got away with it. Nobody knew. And he's like, ha I made it. But if you read Psalm 32, David said, oh, when I didn't confess my sin, the heavy hand of God was on me and my soul became dry like the drought of summer. And he was just miserable, you know? And then he confessed his sin. And he said, oh, he said, blessed is he whose sins are forgiven. Blessed is he whose transgression is covered. Um, you see, the idea of covering up sin, that's always a bad idea. But when it comes to covering sin, well, the Bible actually teaches us about that. There's an Old Testament illustration. Would you keep your finger here in Mark 7 and go with me to Genesis chapter 9? Flip over there real quick, Genesis chapter 9. And in Genesis chapter 9, this is the part of the story of Noah and the ark that you didn't color when you're in Sunday school. Many of you, if you're a Sunday school Bible scholar, um, you remember, okay, Noah's on the ark, floods came down, the water came up and they floated for over a year, uh, but then eventually it started to dry up, the birds, the ark settled, Noah and the gang get off the ark and then there's the rainbow and then there's the altar. Many of you know that part of the story, but the, the part you didn't color, well, it's, it's Genesis 9 verse 20. It says, and Noah began to be a husbandman. He's a farmer after the flood. And he planted a vineyard and he drank of the wine and was drunken and was uncovered in his tent or naked within his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers without. And Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were backward and they saw not their father's nakedness. And Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done unto him. And Noah said, cursed be Canaan, the servant of servants. He shall be unto his brethren. And he said, blessed be the Lord, of Lord God of Shem and Canaan shall be his servant. God shall enlarge Japheth and shall dwell in his tent, the tents of Shem and Canaan shall be his servant. Why does Noah curse Ham's descendants through Canaan? Why does he do that? Um, this is a pretty brutal repercussion of what happened there. You see, I see two things bad going on in the story. Of course, the reason you didn't color is you got Noah busted a move, naked, drunk uh, in his tent. <laughs> Little party going on in his tent. And there he is. And, and what does Ham do? Hey, guys, look at dad. Look at dad. He's naked. He's in his tent. Check it out. Exposing sin. It's like he's um, almost rejoicing in the fact that his dad is doing something sinful and evil. 
Shem and Japheth's response was very different. They, they don't even look at their dad. They put a cloak between them and walk backward and cover the nakedness of their father without even looking. They don't wanna, they don't wanna be any part of that. Um, and, and, and what does the Bible actually say? Well, you know, first Peter talks about this and this is kind of interesting. Above all, keep, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. I'm not arguing for covering up sin. I'm talking about how once sin is seen or known, you don't go around blasting people and exposing and, and you know, but if there's sin that's been acknowledged and repented of, then love actually covers that sin. Now, don't get me wrong. Um, the difference between covering and covering up, um, you know, a good example of this, that uh, when you try to cover up your sin, it always goes badly. Um, uh, churches need to figure this out. Uh, how many scandals do we have to endure? And it's so heartbreaking when you see the scandals of megachurch pastors or the Catholic church for a long time now, and, and you see these scandals covered up and the church thinks that's a good way to handle it. Um, can I just say the church actually is held to even a higher standard than just your average person. Um, because um, if, a, if a pastor is caught up in sin, not, not just, we all sin, but I mean, when we're talking about, you know, a scandal of, of a proportion of, you know, adultery or sexual immorality or the things that often churches cover up, it's no, it's no wonder things don't go well for them. First Timothy, by the way, chapter five, verse 19, talks about the elder. Now the elder, the word is interchangeable in the New Testament, elder, bishop, pastor, uh, any one of those can fit in that. And it says, against an elder receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. In other words, you can't just arbitrarily accuse uh, um, someone in ministry uh, just by yourself against, but you need two or three witnesses. But what happens when they're found out as sinners? Them that sin rebuke before all that others may fear. That's why you should be careful whether you're gonna be in the ministry or not, um, because you're held to a little bit of a higher standard that way. But more than that, I've seen pastors who've tried to cover up sin and not deal with it transparently. And they seem to kind of pull it off. The congregation still sort of hangs out for a while, but eventually be sure of this, the Bible says, your sin will find you out. You can think you're covering up like David, but the heavy hand of God will be on you. In fact, there's a verse that shows us kind of the opposite. There in 1 John 1, 7, this is the good one. It says, but if we walk in the light, now pause there for a second, what did Jesus say? He said, men love the darkness because their deeds are what? Evil. If you're living evil stuff and not being open and confessing your sin, you're, you're wanting to keep it in the darkness. Um, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That's where God's grace, he's forgiving, merciful. Um, and uh, that's the beauty of God's goodness. But if you're trying to live in the darkness, covering up your sin, don't be shocked when you're isolated and alone and nobody is around you anymore. Nobody wants to be around you because it's the antithesis of 1 John 1, 7. If we walk in the darkness, um, as Satan is in the darkness, we won't have fellowship one with another. You'll become isolated and you'll wonder what happened. That's the problem when we try to live in darkness. So covering up sin leads to isolation. Um, but um, the work of the Holy Spirit is actually to convict us of sin. Not your job, the Spirit, John 16, eight. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. So um, there is a thing of covering that's loving versus covering up. I had to make that somewhat clear. 
So, so here we see these guys, they're all about uncovering. Look at your disciples. They're not doing this. They're not keeping the, the, the elders, uh, you know, uh, the laws of the elders. Um, and they're just looking to uh, take Jesus down a notch um, or even destroy him ultimately. One of the things about trying to tear each other up with being a fault finder, like a Pharisee or a sin sniffer, is you're the one who also gets devoured. You think you're messing up other people, but they're the ones who are gonna get the, the brunt end of the destruction. Um, this is what Galatians 5.15 says. It says, but if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you be not consumed one of another. We start tearing each other apart. I see that also in the church today where people are tearing at each other and there's whole Instagram posts, people that just tear away and wanna rip apart and expose sin. And some of it's legitimate, some of it's not, some of it's vindictive or has a, an agenda, but it's just ugliness, biting and devouring one another. I heard of a tribe that still exists. There's still cannibals in the world. Did you know that around the world? I've been to several places where they, they've had cannibals in the last generation. But um, in Venezuela, there's a tribe by the Chuchero River, um, and they claim to be very modern, but they're still kind of bones in the nose, spear people. And they say, we're just like America, they say. We, we have four years in office, our, our commander in chief, you know, our chief, uh, four years, and then we hold elections and we vote. It's a total democracy, they claim. But on the National Geographic article about the Chuchero River uh, people, they do, they have democracy, four year just term, just like the United States. The only difference is they failed to tell the guys about is the outgoing commander in chief, they all eat him after his office term is over. A uh, little, little, little dinner there. Um, not that unlike our political system, but um, uh, anyway, I digress. So um, be careful, a fault finder, you can try to devour other people, but you yourself end up being devoured in the process. That's something you should be aware of. Um, so we looked at the fault-finding Pharisees, number one, but also the troublesome traditions. Let's talk about that. Jesus brought up the, the idea of Corbin um, as, as one example. I always like to ask people, give me an example. And usually I like to ask, because uh, usually they'll give their best attempt at the best example. And oftentimes it's not a very good example. You're like, that's the best thing you got? Well, Jesus does that and he gives a really good example. And it's something that was happening in the first century. And it has to do with this word Corbin. It's actually a word, if you look it up in the Greek dictionary, the word Corbin in the Greek, it means a gift offered to the Lord. Uh, a sacred treasury is kind of the idea. Um, the Hebrew entomology goes back to the Hebrew word Korban, which means an offering set aside for the Lord, an oblation. Um, and you say, okay, what, what's Jesus talking about? Well. He starts off with, um, you know what the law of Moses says, honor your father and mother. And if you curse your father and mother, you're guilty of death. And that is in the law of Moses. Jesus is quoting the true law of God. You're supposed to honor your father and mother. That's set, that's locked in. But what the people were doing is they were using this, this law of Corbin that was a tradition of the elders that, got, that evolved over time. And I'll just give you a quick summary of how that worked. In the Hebrew Old Testament, the word Korban, it meant to set something aside for the Lord as a gift. If you made a really good crop one year and you give 10% of it to your tithes to the Lord as they were required to do, but you say, you know what? I've been so prosperous. I'm gonna give another 10% and I'm gonna call this section of my field Korban or Korban in the Hebrew. It's gonna be set aside for God and his purposes. And so you harvest that and give that extra Korban over to the priests. 
But as the centuries went by, people started abusing it. They'd say, this, this part of my field is Corbin, but they wouldn't really give it to the Lord. It would be actually them just trying to toot their horn and make a big show of giving. And so finally, the oral tradition said, if you call something Corbin, it has to stay Corbin forever. And, and, and then the laws came where, and if you, use, if you call something Corbin, only you can do something with it. No one else can do anything with that. You can't give it to your neighbor to make extra money. Uh, you have to use that. So there was all kinds of changes of, of Corbin and what it meant. By the first century, it got really weird. Here's how it would shake, would shake out. The people would use the rule of Corbin to make sure nobody got their stuff. If you invited mom and dad over for dinner, like here, here's what Jesus was actually talking about. If you invite mom and dad over for dinner and you say, hey, we're having dinner and we cooked up and you're cooking a big old ribeye steak, you know, a tomahawk from uh, cuts first there in Canby, uh, a beautiful ribeye steak. Um, uh, and, 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 then, and, you, and then you went over to the other meat section and got some kosher hot dogs. And when your mom and dad come over, you cook up that tomahawk and then you say, dad says, hey, thanks, this is great. And you say, oh, Corbin, I donated that. That ribeye is actually Corbin. I, I, I purchased it for the Lord. So I'm the only one can eat that. But I did get you some kosher hot dogs, dad. Here you go. Take a good luck with the hot dog. Um, uh, that's what they were doing. They were, they were saying, dad would walk into the living room and say, oh, I need to take a load off. And he sits in a chair and you go, ah, Corbin, that chair is Corbin, that's my chair. You can't sit there, dad. You have to go sit on the rock outside. I'm gonna sit on the, this, this chair in my house. Like they would, they would call everything Corbin to not honor their father and mother and not let their mom and dad get anything from them. And it was a way to actually disrespect your parents. That's why Jesus, he says, you know, you do this whole thing with the, the, the Corbin uh, saying it is a gift set aside for God. And what you're actually doing, did you hear what Jesus said? This is, this is heavy. He says, what you're doing, verse 13, is you're making the word of God of no effect. The word was supposed to affect you to honor your father and mother. That was the goal. But you've turned it around with your stupid traditions, uh, human elder traditions, and you're undoing what God's original intent was. Do you know the human nature of that is to undo things that were meant to be something good? Um, I could even talk about our own constitution. The idea of separation of church and state, what was the original intention of that? Well, if you know, it was the exact opposite of what they're saying it is today. Today, they say separation of church, church and state, there should be no Christianity, nothing of the Bible or Jesus in any government or any school or anything like that. That's not what the original intent of that, which is not even in the constitution or the bill of rights or the, the uh, you know, declaration. It's in none of those documents, but they've turned it around. And so it actually does the opposite of what they originally meant for it to be. That's exactly what we do with the Bible. Our tradition cancels out what the original intent of the Bible was. So, um, what are some of these, these things? You know, uh, the, the Corbin thing is such a, a ridiculous thing. Jesus gives a perfect analogy. and says, you are um, undoing what the word of God actually says. What are some of the traditions that the church of Jesus Christ today does that are the same thing? Traditions that are not good. They're just traditions of men. They're not in the Bible at all. But somewhere along the way, we believe they were God's word. And so we've, we've accepted it as good. The, and by the way, there are some traditions that are not in the Bible that are good. I just have to say that. Um, I'm not saying just because it's not in the Bible, it can't be a good tradition. Um, I, I use this, I think, when we were in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, how praying with your eyes closed. Um, is that in the Bible? No, you don't have to pray with your eyes closed. In fact, most people in the Bible, they lifted up their eyes to heaven when they prayed. Um, so where did we get that? Your mom, 
at the dinner table, Brett, stop looking around, stop making funny faces at your sisters, um, close your eyes and bow your head. And I'm gonna say that's a good tradition. Where it would become bad, by the way, I'm gonna use kind of a ridiculous example here. Where it becomes bad is if you say, you're not really praying unless you close your eyes. That'd be dumb. Bible doesn't say that. Yeah, but there's probably some people that think, I'm not really praying if I'm not closing my eyes. The Bible says pray without ceasing. So that means we should be praying all the time. Even maybe when you're driving down the road, should you close your eyes when you're praying, driving down the road? I wouldn't recommend that. Unless you're driving a Tesla, self-autopilot or whatever. Of course, if you saw the article this week, that's not working out too good either. But the point that I'm making is you can undo something with a human tradition. Uh, and, and so what do we do? Let me give you a bunch here, just f- rapid fire. Uh, what about infant baptism? Some of you were baptized as babies, well-meaning parents who loved you and wanted to check the box and say, Junior is a Christian because they were baptized a Christian in the church when they were a baby. Sounds so wonderful. And you know, big fancy churches, more, more uh, fancy than AC Creek. Brett, who are you to challenge the, con- it's not me challenging it. I would just ask where in the Bible do you ever see a baby being baptized? It's not happening. Um, there's dedication of babies, but there's no baptism of babies. Um, and if you read the Bible carefully, most of the time when the word baptism is mentioned in the Bible, there's another word associated with it almost always. Does anybody know what that word is? Repent, repent and be baptized. Acts 2.38 is a great example. Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized. Baptism is to, to repent for your sins and acknowledge your sins. And it's an outward sign of, a, of what the Lord's doing in your life. And it's something you're supposed to do. Okay, wait, when should you do it? What's the perfect age of baptism? I'm not sure I know the perfect age. It might have to do with the age of accountability, which is a whole nother conversation. But would you agree, let's go simple here. (laughs) Would you agree that Jesus was perfect? Yes, I'm glad that three of you agree with that. (laughs) It's like you guys think I'm doing trick questions all the time. (laughs) Yeah, Jesus was perfect and Jesus got baptized. How old was he? 30 years old. And even when he got baptized, John the Baptist, Mr. Baptism said, oh, I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. And Jesus said, let's do this to fulfill all righteousness. Could Jesus have been baptized as an infant? Of course, but that's not the, that wasn't the point. <laughs> the point that I make is um, some of you are baptized as infants. Now you say, well, Brad, it's such a nice tradition and all that. Well, it might be, but where it becomes dastardly is... There's so many people that when they get older, they have a sense, I need to still be baptized, but I don't wanna get baptized twice. And, and there's a lot of you that think, well, that's the unpardonable sin. If I got baptized as an infant, should I get baptized as an older person? Is that like doubling up? And um, here's a question. Do you think God's mad at you? As if you get to a place in your life where you're an adult, you say, man, I just wanna be baptized as an adult who can acknowledge what baptism means and, and really embrace that radical part of my Christian faith and do that. Do you think God's, no, you got baptized. Get out of the water. You got baptized when you're an infant. That's not the Lord at all. I believe if you were baptized as an infant, I believe it's very possible you really should just get baptized as an adult. Because the reason I say that, not out of a legalistic mind, but in my own walk, being saved as a Christian was one of the most amazing events of my life, but very close second was being baptized before a, a part of the church and being baptized uh, uh, before God and before my friends 
and saying, I'm taking this plunge, showing this outward sign of an inward expression of faith. It's a part so many of you missed out on because you were baptized as an infant. Well-meaning parents, I'm not knocking that. I understand why they do it, but it's not biblical. It's not. It's a tradition of men. Check the box, junior was baptized, phew, at least they're saved and go to heaven now. And that's not even true. That's a false sense of security. A person needs to, at an age of accountability, whatever that is, a person needs to repent of their sins and confess with their mouth and accept Jesus Christ as their savior and Lord. And then they can be baptized and it's such a beautiful part of their faith. So infant baptism, man, we could talk more about that. But um, what, what about this? Um, I always love to talk about this one. This is my pet peeve one and you're probably sick of me talking about it. But where's your pointy hat, Brett? Why aren't you wearing a pointy hat and your robe? You should be wearing a pointy hat and robes. If you're a real priest or pastor, you'd be swinging some incense, walking up and down the aisles, or whatever you grew up with, your liturgy and stuff. Where did the pointy hat come from? Stupid traditions of men. They're not, the pointy hat is not a biblical um, tradition uh, of the Bible. It's a tradition of men. In fact, uh, we could go into where the pointy hats came from and it's actually quite sinister where it came from. Um, but I won't go into all that. But, um, and, and so some of you are like, well, okay, but forget the pointy hat and the robe. Just put on some long pants for crying out loud. <laughs> and I always get that one. Uh, you know, uh, I love all you guys that are dressed really nicely. Here's the thing. This is, a, this is one of those traditions we can kind of be uh, careful about. Is it a good thing to dress up on a Sunday morning and uh, to worship the Lord and dress a little nicer than the other day? Sure, if, if you wanna do that, that's awesome. I appreciate those of you that dress up and, and get a little nicer for Sunday morning. That's great. If that's what makes you feel about worshiping God, is that's an expression you like to, good for you. But if you are trying to make everybody else do that, that's ridiculous. Show me the scripture that says, thou shalt dress up fancy for church. In fact, um, you, th this is where it gets wrong is when people start saying, you need to start dressing up. You can do it. But nowhere in the Bible does it say that. And, and by the way, remember how the Corbin thing was undoing the actual word of God? The dressing up fancy thing can actually undo the word of God in several ways. Let me explain. Um, I love our Slavic community here at Athey Creek. We got a bunch of people, the Russian church, the Ukrainian church. And I, I just love the heart of these young people that are coming and saying, we just wanna hear the word of God. And, and they all come, you, you know a lot of our Slavic community because they're dressed so nicely. And, I, and I'm so thankful for that. You, you guys know how to dress it up. But I always hear from them, Brett, you're, my parents think you're crazy. Uh, they think we're going to a cult church because you wear shorts, you know? And, and uh, I understand, I understand why their parents think that and all that stuff. But can I just say, here's the problem with this. And that is um, the early church, they gathered in their normal clothes. They, they didn't dress up for the services. That was just the early church. We know that. They came wearing their everyday duds. Most of them had one pair of clothing and that's it. Um, and they wore that. Um, but here's, and, and those of you that come from the Slavic community, you know what I'm talking about. It can become as nice as everybody's dressed. It can become very ugly when it becomes a competition. Who's driving the nicest car? Who's wearing the fanciest clothes? Who looks the best? Uh, is that the intent of the Bible? For us to start dressing up to compare to one another? That starts to be anti-Bible. Uh, it becomes pride and ugliness. It even gets worse when, when a church, and there's churches, lots of them, you may not know this, but uh, especially if you're an Athey Creeker and you're kind of born and raised here, try going to Texas and going to a big church wearing your flip-flops and a t-shirt and shorts, they won't even let you in the door. 
There's a lot of churches that won't even let you in the door. How many of you guys have been to churches where they wouldn't even let you in the door if you were wearing flip-flops? And said, yeah, some of you guys know what I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> so is that what the Lord wants? See, I believe Jesus, when he was ascending into heaven from Jerusalem, did he say, go into all the world and look really nice, go to Nordstrom's and dress it up, baby. Is that what Jesus said? No, Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel, make disciples, baptize people. And see at Athey Creek, one of the reasons I like that we don't have the pressure to dress up fancy is because I want everyone from out there who's unsaved to be able to come in here and not feel like they have to go to Nordstrom first to get to go to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. I use Nordstrom. My sister Jenny was, uh, her and her husband were in the Air Force. They traveled all over the world, different military bases. But my sister Jenny was telling me that she went to this one church, I think it was an assembly of God, uh, right next to their base in, uh, where was that? I think North Carolina. Um, and they made a bunch of friends, but she was always shocked to see all these military wives and these friends of theirs, neighborhood friends, they lived all on base. They'd go to church and the women would show up in these thousand dollar dresses. And every week they just dressed to the nines, looking beautiful. And, and Jenny was like, man, how do these military wives afford these really nice dresses and everything? And she finally pulled one of her friends aside one day and said, what's going, like, how do you guys afford all those dresses? New dress every week. I said, Jenny, she said, this is what we do. We go to Nordstrom on Friday, get the dress, wear it to church on Sunday, bring it back on Monday. <laughs> uh, now, are we missing the point a little bit there? I think so. I think so. Um, uh, I could go on and on, but boy, don't make your human tradition rule. It could be a good tradition as long as it's a get to and you just enjoy it to worship the Lord. That's great. But don't be coming against others who are saying, you know what? You don't have to dress up for church. That's first Babylonians chapter one. I'm telling you right now. <laughs> you're, just making, you're just making stupid stuff up. Oh, I could go on and on. What about worshiping worship? Um, is the modern day worship team, worship uh, events, is the modern day worship with the smoke and the lights and the band, and is that, the, is that supposed to be the main feature of a church? Um, if you read your Bible, it's, it's such a minor feature of God's people. It's barely even mentioned in the New Testament, Jesus saying one hymn um, before the, the communion table there on the uh, upper room, Last Supper, one hymn. Uh, I think you can find it barely in, in Ephesians talks about we can sing songs and hymns, spiritual songs, uh, singing and making melody in our hearts to the Lord. Um, there's a mention of singing songs. And then in the book of Revelation, there's people singing songs around the throne of heaven, but that's pretty much it. But there's some people, and I hope none of you would do this, some people make a decision about what church they're gonna attend based on how wonderful the worship team is or uh, you know, how awesome the worship is. And you know what? These worship movement churches, People could care less about the doctrine that's being taught there, but they're all into the worship itself. Uh, the doctrine could be wacko. There could be huge scandals going on in the church of sexual impropriety and all kinds of horrible things. And yet people are like, yeah, but the worship's awesome. Um, they're missing the point. And that's a tradition of men. Um, I'm, you don't get me wrong. I, I love worship. I like singing songs. I'm a musician myself. I like, I like singing songs of praise. And that's why we do it here because it's a great way to express our heart to the Lord. But be careful, Christian. Don't worship worship. Um, we can undo the word of God, making it of no effect. You and I should be 10 times more concerned about the doctrine that's being taught 
more than the worship that's being sang. Uh, we've got it all backwards. That's a tradition of men. Um, and I could just go on and on about all the, and you're saying, Brett, you sure do. Um, that, by the way, um, uh, don't forget on this, uh, how we look at church, you know, it's Samuel that told the people, um, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. If you're looking at what people are wearing at church, you're looking at the wrong thing. Um, you know, where do we get our traditions? Therefore, 2 Thessalonians 2.15, brethren, stand fast, hold the traditions which you've been taught, whether by word or our epistle. Um, uh, you gotta hold fast to the scripture, the word, which would be the Old Testament, or our epistle, which is the New Testament. We get to use that. Paul told young Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, and the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. In other words, stick to the traditions uh, of what we would today call the word of God, including the epistles. And so finally, lastly, we, we've got, you know, the fault-finding Pharisees, uh, the troublesome traditions, and lastly, the inadequacies of the Pharisees. What did these religious leaders lack? Um, the word made no effect to them. They could care less about the true word of God and they were more into their traditions. Um, and because they didn't follow the word, they had no authority. I wanna remind you, Mark chapter one, we read this a few weeks ago. Remember when Jesus spoke, it says, and they were astonished, the people were astonished at his doctrine, that's the teaching. For he taught them as one having had authority not as the scribes, and later it says, and not as the Pharisees. The, the people could discern, these Pharisees are wacko. They couldn't quite define it, and the people were submitted to the Pharisees, and then, well, the Pharisees said this, so. But Jesus comes along with truth, and he drops this truth right in front of them, and he's calling the Pharisees hypocrites, and they're all more into their little goofy traditions of the elders that have nothing to do with the word of God, and Jesus calls them out for it. But the people could sense that they, they had no authority in what they were saying, Jesus alone. Why did they lack authority? Well, if you look at our story here, they had a double standard going, they had some crazy rules in place and it was just inventions of men. And I would just say, a church, as a church person, we should be really careful for the traditions of men. Some traditions, you can let people do them and that's great if they want to, but if it undoes what God actually is telling us to do, then we're missing out and we gotta fix that. Uh, Watch out for the traditions of men. Let's stick with the word of God, amen? Amen. Lord, I do pray your blessing on this congregation as uh, we just take this in, this reminder once again, you, your word is uh, sometimes repetitious, um, but I love that because it reminds us and it teaches us to be careful on the things that matter. So Lord, I pray that each one of us would sort through what are the traditions of man that are good or bad, and what are the things that actually go against what your word actually teaches? Give us wisdom, Lord. And, and I thank you for people that are willing to plow through scripture and study your word. May it bring forth good fruit in our lives, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.